Let's bow our heads to the Lord. Lord, this morning we just want to ascribe to you that which is due your name. Glory, honor, strength. You are worthy of our praises, Father in heaven. Your son Jesus is worthy of our praises. We come into your courts with praise. Your word says that holiness befits your people. And so Jesus, we just set ourselves apart unto you in these days. Lord, we want to be your people, your church, the redeemed of the Lord. We want to live for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. We, uh, we just offer ourselves to you this morning. God, I want to say that before you alone do we tremble. We want to fear God alone. And so, Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you for saving us this morning. We thank you for the cross. We acknowledge that you reign The Lord reigns. Your word says that the nations are to declare that, that the Lord reigns. And so we exalt you, Jesus, as uh, the risen, the crucified and risen Lord, the King of the nations, and we praise you. We say to you, Jesus, uh, we love you. We acknowledge, Jesus, that your word tells us you are coming to judge the nations, both the quick and the dead, and you're going to bring your kingdom and your glory, and we set our hearts upon you, Lord, this morning. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you reveal yourself to us through the word. And so, God, may you bless this time as we uh, seek to meet with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Sweet. We are back in the book of 1 Samuel. So, if you've got your Bibles, you can go there. We uh, started off before uh, the Easter season in 1 Samuel, and so uh, we're going to keep going with this pretty cool Bible account uh, here. This is the story of the capture of the ark, and I just called the message that the capture of the ark, and it's really cool. One of the things I'm going to tell you about this story before we even read it is this is one of those spots where um, archaeology is proven by the Bible. People often think it's the other way that archaeology proves the Bible, but the Bible proves archaeology. And in the late 70s, an account of this very story was found in Philistine ruins in a silo, a five-line account of their capture of the ark and what happened to them. And so we're going to check out uh, this cool story this morning. It's actually the earliest known uh, extra-biblical event that has a great historical record like this. And so... um, any Indiana Jones fans out there? Yes. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so some of these pictures are going to be in, in your heart and in your mind as we check out this part of 1 Samuel. So we're in chapter 4. And so far as we've been going through Samuel, what we've seen is this is the development um, of this young man, Samuel, God's call on his life, how he was set apart to the things of God, how he was brought to the house of the Lord and raised there and where we left off with Samuel was this, is just seeing how God was maturing him and growing his character and how the word of the Lord was coming to him. And the text tells us that he was bringing the word of God to the nation of Israel. And the Lord had established him as a prophet. And First Samuel chapter 3 ends with these words, actually. It's worth just kind of remembering because it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. It says this in verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord. So I love that, man. That's just one of the ways. One of the ways God reveals himself is through his word to us. Uh, And through the word of God, as it was coming to Samuel, Samuel was bringing it to the nation. 
And, uh, and so let's look at what happens here in this account of the Ark of the Covenant and its capture by the enemies of God's people. Verse 1 says this, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So this is a tragic start to this story. After we've been watching the rise of this young man, Samuel, to be a prophet of the Lord, the word of the Lord's coming to him. It's going out to all Israel. But we don't get any sense as we read this story. The author doesn't tell us that this, this battle is initiated by a word from God or that Samuel's a part of what's going on here. Uh, in fact, in the story of 1 Samuel, Samuel's not going to be mentioned again now till chapter 7. And so I think it's fair to say this, that Samuel's not involved in what's going on here in this story. So Israel goes out to battle, and in those days, Israel was still battling with the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And among the Canaanites, the Philistines had kind of been become the, the big dog. They were the most formidable foe. We see that all throughout the story of Saul and David and through First and Second Samuel, the Philistines lived in um, what is today Gaza Strip, right? The Gaza Strip area. They were a seagoing, seafaring uh, people. And among the enemies of God's people, Israel, they had be kind of become unique because they had become the most militarily advanced people. They, got techno- they had technology in terms of war and militarily compared to the Israelites, they just had the upper hand. And so they go to battle, and what happens? Israel gets whooped. 4,000 soldiers die in the field of battle. 4,000 young men, that's incredible to just stop and think about that number, right? 4,000 young men were not coming home to their families, to their wives, to their children. It's a significant loss for one battle. And So Israel does this, they regroup and they assess the situation, what has gone wrong. So look at verse 3, they say this, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and they brought from the brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So after this defeat, Israel asks a question. It's a good question. Hey, why did God allow this to happen? Why did this happen to us? Uh, why, Why so many casualties? Why did the enemy get the upper hand on us? What went wrong? Why wasn't the Lord here with us in the midst of battle? Now, those are good questions, aren't they? Like to ask that, to go, where's God in the midst of what's going on? We should always be asking that question. And so they determine, hey, look, if we're going to go to battle, we've got to make sure we have the Lord with us. How are we going to gain the upper hand on the enemy if God is not with us? And that's a good conclusion, that when we are in battle with the enemy, we have to Make sure the Lord is with us. So they went to Shiloh. And there in Shiloh was the tabernacle. And from the tabernacle, they brought with them the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, the Ark of the Covenant, I know many of you know this, but it's kind of fun to talk about. The Ark of the Covenant was this visible representation of God's presence and his throne on earth. The text said that he's enthroned on the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. It was this symbol of God's throne in heaven. It was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The Ark was this golden box. You know the story. It held within it the Ten Commandments, and it was symbolic of God's throne. And there was a lid that was placed on top of this Ark of the Covenant that was called the mercy seat. And and once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would make atonement for the sins of the nation. He would make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would offer the blood of the sacrifice. And the place where he would apply the blood was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, this mercy seat. The tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was the place where Israel gathered to worship, where the nation came together corporately to seek the Lord. And the tabernacle, as we know, was divided into three parts. There was the outer court, which just regular Joes like you and I could come and worship the Lord. And then beyond that, there was the inner court where the uh, priests did their work and offered sacrifices, and only they were allowed to perform their duties with regards to the worship of the Lord. And then beyond the inner court was the tent of meeting. And there inside the tent of meeting was that table of showbread, the the menorah that we know so well, and uh, the altar of incense where the priests would offer incense to the Lord. And then beyond that tent of meeting in this room in the inner sanctum was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only one man once a year got to go in to the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest. And there he would make atonement for the people of Israel. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the Bible tells us a lot about this, that he would wear a garment. And on that garment, on the hem of the garment, there were bells So that as he walked in the presence of God, there would be chiming and and the ringing of the bells. And those who were on the outside could hear the priest moving around on the inside with those bells chiming. And and there's this, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a really cool story. So I just kind of love telling it. (laughs) So we'll kind of leave it at that. I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but you know that they say this, that the high priest, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle. How many of you heard this before? Heard this before? Yeah. They would tie a rope around his ankle so that should he go in before the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and be found unclean and the Lord struck him dead in his presence, no one would have to go in there and retrieve his body. (laughs) That's right. So it's just, you got it. Drag him out, okay? It's like a fish on the end of the line. Well, I don't hear it. The bells aren't ringing anymore. (laughs) Tug, tug. Yeah, he's down. Out he comes, okay? So, I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a pretty cool story. So, the the Ark of the Covenant was an incredibly important symbol of God's presence, an incredibly important part of the worship of God's people where atonement was made for them. And, you know, on occasion, as the Lord directed, the Ark of the Covenant would be carried out in war and, and God would bring victory for the children of Israel. Like when they marched around the walls of Jericho, they were led by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, okay? 
So, you know, in one sense, after being defeated by the Philistines, the conclusion's kind of right by the children of Israel. It's like, hey, God's defeated us. We've been defeated by our enemy, and we need God with us if we're going to defeat the enemy. So the problem is, let's get God's presence. And the problem was that in retrieving the ark, the people never actually consulted the Lord. That's what I want to point out to you here. They never sought God. The ark was not God. The ark was not God. The ark was a symbol of God's throne and a symbol of God's presence. And they don't seek the Lord. They just go and retrieve the ark. Check out verse 4. Again, we looked at this, but I want to point this out. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it, I tried to highlight this. Is it on there? Oh, yeah. Didn't do a very good job, but it's kind of italicized there. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Crazy. Crazy. I mean, they were looking to this physical object rather than to the living God. Rather than humble themselves before the Lord, they they do this act of going and taking the Ark of the Covenant. And you know, really the Bible tells us this, that the key to the presence of God is humility. Humility. To humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up, James 4.10. First Peter says that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He will exalt you. That's what Peter said. The psalmist said, the Lord adorns the humble with salvation. Isaiah said this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. In Israel, as we read this story here, rather than humbling themselves before the Lord to seek him as as to the reason for their defeat and to seek him for the victory in the next battle, they went to the tabernacle, they retrieved the Ark of the Covenant, and they treated it as their savior. You know, like some like, to me, it's like really superstitious. It's like this action, it's like, they treated the ark like it's like a pagan good luck charm. They failed to realize that their God, Yahweh, was the living God, and and instead they treated a physical representation of his presence with them, the ark of the covenant, as like a a talisman, like as as an idol, a lucky charm. And they looked to the ark to save them rather than for God to save them. Instead of getting right with God and coming to Him in repentance and humility, they devised a superstitious means for war. And I think this is like a good, you know, like we should learn from this. We should recognize what's going on here. You know, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, I want to warn us of the same mistake. You know, maybe even just gathering here together for us this morning to say, oh, the church is this superstitious act that as we come together... And we replace God for the church. The gathering of God's people is not a good luck charm against the wiles of the devil. I have to tell you that and remind us of that this morning. We are the church of the living God. We are the bride of Christ. There is nothing superstitious. There's to be nothing superstitious about this gathering. Rather, what we do is we humble ourselves before the Lord, the one on whom we depend, the one to whom we look. We gather and we humble ourselves before the Lord God. We repent of sin. That is what we do as followers of Jesus. 
We turn our lives to the living God because we're people desperate for the presence of God in the face of an enemy. We humble ourselves. We confess, as God's people, we confess there is only one name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. The name Jesus. We confess, we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is coming to judge the earth. And He is our hope. He is our salvation. In Him alone is our salvation. And so we ascribe to Him glory. We give Him our hearts and our lives and we worship Him alone. He's our hope. And so before Jesus, we repent. We we say, Jesus, you're more than enough. We turn our hearts towards you and you alone. But the children of Israel, they they made this mistake. They, They took the Ark of the Covenant and they treated it like it was a good luck charm. And they sent two wicked priests. I mean, the sons of Eli, these guys. An unnamed prophet had warned that these men were going to die. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Remember those guys? A few weeks ago, we looked at them. They treated the house of God like their own brothel. They, they took advantage of the sacrifices of God and treated them with contempt. And the Lord said they were going to die for those actions. And this is the men sent to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. This just shows you this is not going to go good. Uh-oh. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now that is awesome. Like the earth shaking. The earth resounding at the shout of the people of God. I mean, the army of Israel saw the Ark of the Covenant coming towards the camp. They just saw it, like off in the distance, you know, the priest carrying it towards the camp. And, and they, they treated it as though the Lord himself had come into their presence. And so this shout was so mighty that the earth shook and, and the ground trembled. And you would think like, I mean, that's exciting, don't you think? Wouldn't you love to experience that and be around that? I mean, I think of Acts chapter 4, the church gathering, praying, the ground shook. There was an earthquake. And you would think with all that noise that something wonderful was happening, but all the noise in the world didn't bring God into their presence. And we can do this again as a church, you know? Shouts, jumping, cheers, (laughs) the whole deal, all the noise in the world, and it can look like so much is going on, but it doesn't matter if it's not properly grounded in the Word of God. It's just noise. This was just noise. You know, I think like emotion is wonderful. I love to worship God. My kids are always like, Dad, you sing so loud. I'm like, I can't help it. I want to sing loud to the Lord. We want to worship God with all the energy that he is worthy of, with shouts and raising of hands and loud singing. But those actions need to be rooted in the right heart. Amen? And Israel gave the appearance of trusting God, but it was nothing It was just a shout. No, God doesn't care about how high we jump. God cares about how straight we walk. And with that said, you know, when you worship God, I would say this, it should be loud. It should be boisterous. God is worthy of praise that shakes the earth, amen? He is worthy of praise that shakes the ground, but it it has to be rooted in a heart of humility, and that was what was missing with the children of Israel. We don't want to confuse the worship of God with the worship of worship. I mean, remember that 
song back in the day there, you know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. We don't want to get this confused. And so the cry of Israel shook the ground, but it was just noise. It wasn't the shout of victory rooted in trusting God. And we know this because of how it played out. Check out verse 6. It says this, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into their camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. Be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. <laughs> the, the Philistines asked this question. At the shout, they said, what does all of this mean? What, what is going on? What is with this shouting that shakes the earth? They, they were afraid when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant had come to the camp. They're like, God is amongst the Hebrews over there. They thought that God had come into the camp of Israel. And in one sense, you know, these guys, the Philistines, they had some things right about the Lord. They didn't serve Yahweh, but they knew that Yahweh was more powerful than any other God. They knew that Yahweh was the Lord who struck down the gods of the Egyptians and led his people out of slavery. Their theology, I would say, and their understanding of God was actually, you know, in some ways better than the Israelites. The Philistines at this point had a better comprehension of who God was than Israel did. They were afraid of the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was there. But that said, it's not like the Philistines repented. It's not like they turned in their fear towards the Lord. That would have been the right response to turn to God in repentance, giving allegiance to Him. But instead, they encouraged one another. They said, you're going to become a slave to these Hebrews unless you fight. So you better fight. Be men and fight. Be men and fight. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, this is incredible. We read this. What do we see about the Philistines? The Philistines fought. And they fought like men. Israel, on the other hand, acted like they had it in the bag. You know, they had it in the back pocket. It was a sure thing. This is a guaranteed win. That was their prediction. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. And we've put our trust in that. And, and I think, you know, there's good lessons here in the midst of this. Like godless Philistines can teach you something even here. Christians, you know, I, I would say this. We need to show courage in the days in which we live. These guys fought like men. And it's a good thing to do that. Don't give up when things look hard. You know, for some reason, we often think this, that God's path is an easy path. We go, oh, God's path, this, the path of least resistance is the one that God is directing me down because that's easy, so God must be in it. But you know, uh, lots of times, God's blessing does not come through ease. 
You're taking your foot off the gas. Sometimes it's, it's the case that God blesses the hard road, the hard path, the way that is not easy. And, and that's really awesome when God does that for his children, that the, that the route of his blessing would be difficult. Sometimes, in fact, the easy path is the devil's path. And the one with resistance is God's path. You have to have courage. You have to fight like men. It's amazing to think about this. The Philistines fought like men. Israel acted like it was a guarantee. They didn't bring their A game. They didn't bring their best. The Israelites trusted in the ark rather trusted in the ark of God rather than the God of the ark. And the slaughter was great. 30,000 foot soldiers this time. That is, I can't even imagine that. It's a bloodbath. More than seven times the soldiers lost in round two. It's devastating, like an incredible defeat. Defeat with an exclamation mark, and it's hard to fathom this kind of loss. But I would say this, the Lord didn't want any confusion in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this loss. He didn't want any confusion with regards to what was going on. As had been prophesied, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. Worst of all, the ark was captured. Now check out what it tells us in verse 12. Read through here to verse 18. A man of Benjamin, hey, here's a little bit of a kind of a fun thing. Do you know what the legend is on this? That this man of Benjamin was Saul, son of Kish. Okay? Well, that's just a fun legend. It's not, we're not told that anywhere in the scripture, but kind of a fun picture. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Wow, crazy. Eli, the high priest, sitting on the side of the road, anxious for the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting. It doesn't tell us that he's anxious for his sons. <laughs> They've come and taken the Ark of the Covenant. Far less concerned about the sons, it seems, than he was about the Ark. And he was worried by the fact that, that the Ark had been taken. And when he hears the word that the Ark was captured, he falls backward from his seat. He's an old man. He's a fat man. <laughs> Not very complimentary. Broke his neck. And died because he was so large and overweight. And we know this. I mean, Eli had, like his sons, gotten fat off the offerings that belonged to the Lord. And he died on the same day as his sons. Now check out verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, 
and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, what a name for a child. The glory has departed. Or where is the glory? That's what that name means. <laughs> it's like... Great, congratulations, you had a boy, where's the glory? It's awful. The Hebrew word for, for glory is the word kabod. It means weight, splendor. It speaks of God's presence, a reference to it, that there's weight and splendor to the presence of God. It was the glory and weight and splendor of God, the kabod that descended upon Mount Sinai before Moses and the children of Israel when the Ten Commandments came. It was the same glory, the kabod, that came and entered into the tabernacle and the temple when Solomon, yeah, specifically when Solomon dedicated the temple. Remember, the cloud of presence was so thick that the priests could not stand in the glory of God, the kabod. And now the ark is gone, and the word is ichabod. Where's the glory? The glory has departed. I think about what's happened. You know, Hophni and Phinehas had not honored the Lord. Eli had fattened himself on that which belonged to the Lord. The army of Israel, rather than turning to the Lord, had turned to a good thing and made it an idol, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the midst of all of that, God allowed the physical representation of His presence to be taken into the hands of the enemy, to come under the control of the enemy's authority and power. I love it, though, because as we're going to see in the weeks to come, you should read ahead because this story kind of goes on for a couple chapters. I thought, oh, I'm going to do it in one message. Yeah, right. So you got to read ahead. We're going to see God is not defeated. He's totally in control while he's in the midst of the enemy's presence, while he's taken, while his ark is taken. But the glory has departed. But I want to tell the church this, that the glory of God has not departed. It's not departed. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, that long ago, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he also created the world. He, as in Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory, the kabod. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he, up, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus walks in and amongst his church, in and amongst his lampstand. He promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. 
Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And for us, we don't, we don't put our hope in a physical building and a physical object of worship. We put our hope in the one who is the radiance of God's glory, King Jesus. And so church, as I think about this text, it, it makes me say, what do we owe Jesus? What's the right response to Jesus? When we're in battle, we owe him humility. When we're in the face of trouble, we owe him worship. What do we owe God? Well, Paul said it this way, in view of God's mercy, you offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Because that's a holy act. That's an act that pleases him. That is an act of worship, to offer yourself to the Lord. And so this morning, I want to give you just three applications from this text. The first one is this. Humility is greater than superstition. The God we serve is not a good luck charm. We need to hear this. He is a living God who moves amongst his people, who has done a work to save his people. And so we don't approach him with superstitious pagan attitudes. We approach him with a heart of humility. We repent of sin and we humble ourselves before the Lord. And his word says that if you will humble yourself in his sight, he will in due time lift you up. And so church, I want to remind us this morning that in repentance and rest, the word of God says is your strength. So we come to God and we humble ourselves before him. We say, Jesus, you are my life. You are my breath. Without you, I'm nothing. Humility is greater than superstition. The second thing I want to encourage you with is this. Quit you like men. <laughs> I like the King James for that one anyways. <laughs> Quit you like men. That means fight like men. Be ready. Decide to fight like a man for the kingdom of God. Bring your A game. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men and be strong. These are, these are the days when the church has to stand strong, quit you like men, be ready to fight, to bring the A game, to stand fast in the faith. Like the Philistines, the example of the Philistines. Third thing is this, to God be the glory. Look at church, God is not here for us. We are here for him. The, the world does not revolve around you. The world does not revolve around us. Guess who the world revolves around? the Lord, King Jesus. And so we give to him that which belongs to him, glory and strength, the praise of our lips. We give to him the glory due his name. His word says we come into his presence and we enter his gates. We bring the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We come into his courts with praise. And so church, as we just start to dive into this story, I want to leave you with these things. Humility is greater than superstition. Let's not be superstitious people in these days in which we live. And I could point out the superstitions of our culture, but I'll withhold this morning. Quit you like men. Fight like men and give glory to God. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we fix our eyes on you. You are the author and finisher of our faith. And Jesus, before you, we come this morning. We humble ourselves. God, we, we repent. 
God, we look not to our own strength, not to our own might, but we confess Jesus as Lord, that you are our King. Jesus, we thank you that you've purchased us with your blood. We acknowledge this morning and remember, Jesus, the cross of crucifixion where you laid down your life, where you gave your place, you gave yourself in our place for our sins. Jesus, this morning we remember that on that cross you died and you were buried in that tomb, but you are risen from the dead. And you are seated at the majesty, beside the majesty in heaven. And Lord, this morning we ascribe to you glory. We give you praise, Jesus. We humble ourselves before you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would root out of our hearts and out of our lives the superstitious religious acts that we do. May we be men and women that fight for the kingdom of God, that fix our eyes on you, that you would receive all the glory and all the praise. Lord, we love you. And we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.